Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Tax Notes Today International. This week, more after more. We're back talking about more versus U.S., albeit indirectly this week. As we wait for the Supreme Court's decision in that case, another big case is waiting in the wings. Altria versus United States has been referred to as more 2.0 by some in the tax world since the issues at the center of this case bear striking resemblance to the Moore's arguments. To tell us more about this, I'm joined by Tax Notes contributing editor Robert Goulder. Bob, welcome back to the podcast. Hello, Dave. Thanks for having me. Now, just to start off, the name Altria rings a bell. Uh, what does that company do? Yes. Well, they uh, maybe are not a household name, but they once were. It is the successor in interest to Philip Morris, the giant tobacco company. That business decided a number of years ago it needed to rebrand itself. So it adopted a new corporate slogan, moving beyond tobacco. And they're also now more of a diversified multinational. Yeah, they still produce uh, a lot of tobacco products, but they've added adult beverages to their, their offerings. And they did that by going out and acquiring a minority stake in a global beer conglomerate called InBev, based in Belgium. And it's that uh, 10% stake in InBev that is getting Altria in trouble with the IRS. Well, that is a great segue into talking about this case. So could you tell us what is this all about? Yeah. So the case, as you mentioned, it's Altria versus the United States, currently before the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Virginia, just down the road from from where we are today. It raises issues that are so similar to Moore that the taxpayer brought a procedural motion to stay the proceedings pending the outcome of Moore. And the government didn't even bother challenging that motion. So they presumably were fine with uh, staying the proceedings. So the case is frozen. And what does it concern? Well, it has to do with uh, our old friends Subpart F and the TCJA. As you know, in the, in the tax code, there's this section uh, 318 that has all of these sort of um, attribution rules. And most of them are fine. They're not too controversial. A lot of them actually just involve what we refer to as upward contribution, where shares of stock held by a subsidiary are considered to be constructively held by the parent company. So that's fine. The issue is, in, in Section 318 of the Internal Revenue Code, there's, there's also this downward attribution rule, which says that the shares of stock held by a parent company can be attributed down to one of its subsidiaries. And, and that's fine. I mean, if Congress wasn't fine with that, they wouldn't have enacted it. But there was one instance where, where Congress said, we don't like how that works. And they don't like how it works in the subpart F context. So it adopted this other provision, uh, and it's, it's been on the books for a long, long time. It's um, code section uh, 958B4. And it basically says we're not going to permit the downward attribution rule in the subpart F context where it would result in a foreign company's shareholdings in their foreign subsidiaries to be attributed to their U.S. subsidiary. 
they don't like that because it creates a bunch of subpart F issues. It creates CFCs where we think you shouldn't have CFCs. So everything was fine. The system was just chugging along. Everything was normal. And then TCJA comes along uh, late in uh, 2017. And it repeals the bar against downward attribution in the subpart F context. And that creates a big problem for companies they wake up one morning and overnight they've got all these CFCs they didn't think they had. And Altria was one of those companies. Support for this podcast is provided by the University of California Irvine School of Law Graduate Tax Program. This preeminent and innovative program prepares students to practice tax law at the highest level in the U.S. and abroad. Featuring a low student-to-faculty ratio, cutting-edge technology instruction, and dedicated career support, UCI's graduate tax program helps prepare students for a future in tax law. Program graduates are placed in top tax-related industries, practicing law in many major U.S. cities. Applications are open now. For more information and to apply to this highly selective program, visit law.uci.edu slash gradtax. That's law.uci.edu slash grad tax. Now, while both cases seem to come out from the TCJA, they, they, they definitely are, are looking at different areas of, of tax. How does this case relate to more? Yeah, so it relates to more because of the realization requirement. You recall in more, and we've had previous episodes of the podcast where we talked about it, uh, the taxpayers there are challenging the one-time transition rule under Section 965, the, the mandatory repatriation provision, saying, hey, that's constitutionally infirm because it, it doesn't have realization, right? There's this realization concept. It's not not really in the tax code or even in the Constitution or in the 16th Amendment, but there's this old case from the 1920s, Eisner versus Macomber, which basically has in, in some language, it arguably is dicta, but it says, if you don't have the realization of income, you shouldn't have taxable income. That, that's going to be an unconstitutional tax. So that's being litigated in more. And we're going to get an answer at some point, presumably this spring, about what little sliver of Eisner v. McComber still exists in the 21st century. Once we have that answer, we'll be able to go back and, and make better sense of Altria. So, so Altria is not about that transition tax. As I mentioned, it's about the downward attribution rule. But th their argument is this. The taxpayer's theory is that downward attribution in subpart F context, it violates the 16th Amendment because it ignores this realization requirement. That is, the foreign income in question was earned or realized uh, by the, the foreign subs. And those would be the foreign subsidiaries of InBev, that Belgian conglomerate. It's not fair to take that income and attribute it to Altria the U.S. shareholder. Really what they're objecting to is the lack of a control element in the downward attribution rule. It's basically saying the Constitution, as interpreted by McCumber, requires that the U.S. entity needs something more than just a minority 10 percent stake in a foreign entity for you to have that kind of attribution. There should be at least a controlling stake, at least a 50 percent interest. So both of these cases are about the realization requirement. Now, tell us a bit about subpart F. We've talked kind of around it a bit. But what does it do and how important is it to the U.S. tax system? 
Oh, it's critical. It's a it's a, a major way that we guard against erosion of the corporate tax base. I mean, if you think jurisdictionally about the right of Congress to impose a, an income tax on an entity that has some sort of a gain, what are the outer reaches of its jurisdiction, right? There's, there's source and there's residence. And, and if you think about it, if you have a foreign entity that has foreign income, the U.S. really shouldn't be able to tax that unless the income is effectively connected to a U.S. trader business, right? Because under that scenario I just described, you don't have U.S. source income and you don't have a U.S. resident taxpayer. So what is the authority of Congress to tax that income? Well, that's where CFCs come in. And subpart F is the United States incarnation of a CFC regime. It basically says, you know, you've got these two tests, the 50% test and the 10% test. If the foreign entity is controlled by U.S. shareholders, meaning U.S. shareholders collectively own at least 50% of, of, of the foreign entity, then it's okay to attribute its earnings on a current basis to the U.S. shareholder. And there's this 10% test for what is the technical definition of a U.S. shareholder. So in Altria's case, Altria is a U.S. shareholder of the Belgian conglomerate InBev because it owns just over 10%. I think the briefs refer to a 10.2% uh, stake in InBev with the remaining 89 plus percent of the outfit being owned by foreign investors. So the taxpayer, it is a U.S. shareholder for subpart F purposes. But the question really is, is you know, InBev itself is not a CFC because it's not more than 50% owned by U.S. shareholders. So that's the subpart F issue. And, and that's one of the reasons why subpart F is so important to the U.S. tax base. If you didn't have it, it would be really easy to avoid taxes. You just take your income-producing assets and dump them into foreign subsidiaries, and that would be that. Now, did these sort of subpart F questions come up during the arguments and more? Oh, yeah, it did, because um, subpart F relies on attribution. You're, you're taking the income of a foreign entity and attributing it to a U.S. shareholder. In more, it's, it was an Indian agricultural firm, uh, Christencraft, I think was the name of it. And because it's more than 50% owned by U.S. shareholders, Subpart F says, okay, you can take that income and attribute it to the Moors. And they're like, well, you've got the realization problem there. And it's the same kind of attribution that you have here. You're attributing income from a foreign company to a U.S. shareholder. And that is sort of at the root of these cases. Conceptually, it's as though they're first cousins. Support for this podcast is provided by Tax Bandits. CPAs, elevate your tax season with Tax Bandits, where simplified IRS e-filing meets advanced features. Tax Bandits is a leading IRS authorized e file provider, your experts for Forms 1099, W 2, 94X, ACA 1095s, and more. The application is designed with you in mind. Enjoy robust client management, staff management, and reporting tools to help you create your perfect workflow, all without subscription fees or upgrade costs. Create your free account today at taxbandits.com to enjoy the efficiency-boosting features and customer support from Tax Bandits. Use promo code TAXNOTES5 for 5% off your first order. That's taxbandits.com, promo code TAXNOTES5. So you said this case is on hold. Does it make sense to, to wait on this case until after more? 
Yeah, I think so. I think that's kind of a no-brainer. And that's probably why the, the government didn't object to the motion to stay. One way or another, more is going to illuminate our understanding of the realization requirement. You know, sooner or later, the Supreme Court is going to inform us how much of Macomber still survives. And whatever that outcome is, it'll prove very significant for our consideration of Altria. Now, if the Supreme Court rejects realization, altogether, right? Let's say, hypothetically, the Supreme Court affirms the Ninth Circuit and just says there is no realization requirement. It's nothing more than a matter of administrative convenience. If that's the result, then I can't fathom how Altria could prevail in its refund suit. And by the way, this is a refund suit. They paid the tax, about $105 million. Now they're suing for a refund. If the court says there is no realization requirement, I don't see how they could possibly win. In that case, you'd have a summary judgment uh, motion brought by the government that would probably prevail. If you get a different result in more, if the Supreme Court comes back and says, yeah, the Moors win, we're going to invalidate Section 965, then Altria – They've got a very good chance here. I mean, it doesn't guarantee that they would win, but they'd have a much easier path forward because it'd be this new Supreme Court decision out there saying, "Yeah, you you need a realization requirement that it's it's you know something we all have to deal with." Would would this take like a, a taxpayer win and more and and extend it to include a lot more revenue that the government is counting on? Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't remember offhand what the revenue score was for the repeal of um, the downward attribution rule. And it's also worth noting that the Treasury Department is aware of this problem, that so many people were caught by surprise by the TCJA. In fact, there, there's a whole really sort of momentum of people in the corporate community that think the TCJA was poorly drafted. It gave us this result the um, repeal of the the bar against downward attribution in subpart F. But they say that's not really what the law was supposed to do. That's not how it should have been written. Uh, they point to a Senate Finance Committee report that says this shouldn't be a problem. They also point to a, a colloquy, uh, a floor debate between two lawmakers where they're saying things that are then entered into the congressional record saying, no, 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 we're not going to do this. You're not going to have all these new uh, CFCs that pop up overnight. And despite all of that, we still have the statute that we have. And Treasury, to some extent, has been trying to provide relief to taxpayers. There's only so much they can do with this adverse language that's right there in, in black and white in the Internal Revenue Code. So, yeah, if Altria wins, there's going to be a lot of very happy multinational corporations out there. It means they can go back to the same cross-border planning structures they had in place before TCJA where they didn't have to worry about these foreign entities that they thought were not CFCs. Now, lastly, there was this notion of the excise power that came up during the uh, more oral arguments. Could you tell us about that and, and what bearing it could have on Altria? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that, Dave. So this is kind of a big deal. Uh, if you go back and you look at the oral arguments in Moore, which were just about a month ago, right, there was some discussion about this. Um, some of the justices quizzed uh, both the taxpayer's lawyer and the solicitor general about whether the corporate tax is supported by the Article I power to impose excise taxes. It's this concept that the corporate tax itself functionally 
is an excise tax on the privilege of conducting business in the corporate form. Well, that might seem like a fanciful idea, but there's actually a Supreme Court case out there that said exactly that. Now, it's a very old case. It goes back, I think, to 1909. It's called uh, Flint versus Stone Tracy. And it predates the ratification of the 16th Amendment. Well, it was never overruled. It's still sitting there on the books. It's good law. The problem is that in this day and age, nobody genuinely in their heart of hearts thinks of the corporate income tax as being an excise tax. So it's a legalistic argument that doesn't really jive with our gut instincts. Now, the government raised it in more, but they did so sort of at the 11th hour. They didn't argue it before the, the district court or before the Ninth Circuit. They waited until it got before the Supreme Court and then mentioned it in their briefs. And that's problematic because there were at least two of the nine justices saying that the issue, because it hadn't been raised earlier, that it was waived, it was forfeited. Like you can't now come before the Supreme Court and argue that the corporate tax can be justified as an excise tax. That That's not before the court. And, and some other justices said, no, 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 it can be before the court if we want it to be before the court. It's in the Constitution. You know, it's always germane. So it's a very peculiar strategy on the part of the, the government that they didn't raise it early on anymore. And they haven't raised it in Altria here, back to the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Virginia. They haven't raised it. So what are they waiting for? If there's an appeal, it would go to the Fourth Circuit. Would they raise it then? Uh, if it gets appealed to the, the Supreme Court, if, if Altria gets a writ of certiorari, would they raise it then? It's just this bizarre situation. I mean, speaking as an unapologetic tax nerd, it would just be fascinating if you had one of the lower courts dodge the issue of the realization requirement, which is what we think these cases are about, right? We think more is about the realization requirement. We think Altria is about the realization requirement. If, if, if the courts say, well, hold on, wait a minute, we don't even need to get to realization because if it's an excise tax, it only has to be you know, a much lesser threshold. It only needs to be uniform across the states, which it is. That's a very low hurdle to clear. And that position, by the way, it's not an outrageous thing because there's a Supreme Court case saying, yeah, that's the law. Presumably, all federal courts are still obliged to follow a Supreme Court decision like the one in Stone Tracy, even if it's over 100 years old. Despite its age and peculiarity, these lower courts could be obliged to follow it. So if they were to do that, you would then have this issue teed up for the Supreme Court, a reconsideration of the Stone Tracy case. And there's a real sense of worry in the tax community that the Supreme Court would jump at the first chance to reverse Stone Tracy if presented with the opportunity. And Altria could be that springboard. Well, it's always great to keep an eye on the nerdy and arcane areas of tax. And, and Bob, thank you so much for bringing that part to us as well as uh, the entire discussion of this case. We'll definitely have to keep an eye on it. My pleasure, Dave. Anytime. And now, coming attractions. Each week we highlight new and interesting commentary in our magazines. Joining me now is Senior Executive Editor for Commentary, Jasper Smith. Jasper, what will you have for us? Thanks, Dave. In Tax Notes Federal... Six KPMG practitioners examine the mechanics of implementing SEC clawbacks. Mark Asher and Jay Solit propose a straightforward reform of Subchapter E to update, improve, and simplify the grantor trust rules. In Tax Note State, four Bass, Barry, and Sims practitioners examine AI 
and how it might help understand the challenges of applying traditional tax concepts to new technologies. Ray Stevens and Rick Reams examine why tax agencies overwhelmingly choose litigation instead of rulemaking. In Tax Notes International, five tax practitioners explain changes to the taxation of foreign source income in Hong Kong, Malaysia, and Singapore. Mindy Hertzfeld examines the legal status of Pillar 2 administrative guidance around the world. And finally, in Featured Analysis, Marie Sapiri examines the IRS's new registration portal for transferring energy tax credits and receiving elected payments. That's it for this week. You can follow me online at taxstew, that's S-T-E-W, and be sure to follow at Tax Notes for all things tax. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com podcast. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.